Ripken has become so successful that he's a metaphor. Last week in New York, actress Catherine Russell, who's in her 35th year starring in the same role, having never missed a day, was described as, quote, the Cal Ripken of Broadway. In 1982, when Cal's streak began, his walk-up song could have been Ronnie Millsap's Wouldn't Have Missed It for the World or Survivor's Eye of the Tiger, songs that would still have applied decades later. One song we know he never had to play was Put Me In, Coach. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to you. Thank you for joining me, Cal. That that was very nice. But I will say uh, there was a period at the start of my career where I was begging to be put in the game. Um, I got called up after my uh, 81 season. The stri- there was a strike, and they, uh, and they um, expanded the rosters by two, and I got called up on August 9th, uh, made my debut on the 10th. And the Orioles were uh, still working for a playoff spot, and Doug DeSensei, there was some question whether he was going to be uh, you know, injured or not because right before the strike he was injured. But he played great, and I met, ended up sitting and watching him play for the month of September. And I kept thinking, man, I, if I ever get into that lineup, I'm not coming out. <laughs> well, you'd get well. And didn't Doug DeSensei, wasn't it only Brooks played third more than DeSensei? Yeah. So, I mean, so- um, I came in behind. I mean, what a tough uh, replacement that Doug came in, who was a really good all-star player, came in and he had to take over for where uh, uh, Brooks had played for all those years before. And I think some of the pressure got to him a little bit. Um, but, uh, they traded Doug DeSensei in the start of the 82 season to California to make room for me. And so, uh, I, I, I assumed that position and it only lasted a couple months and they moved me to short. Has, uh, Ryan Miner ever been heard from again? Yeah, I see. I saw Ryan Miner at our gala, um, just a couple nights ago. Really? And uh, he, he uh, was in the minor leagues as a, uh, as a manager and instructor, uh, uh, down there for the Orioles. And I think he was. With the Tigers. So I think he's still in professional baseball. He didn't crush his soul, huh? <laughs> Did you ever hear the funny story of that? Uh, is that I decided, I didn't tell anybody, but I decided uh, earlier in the season that if, if, it, uh, if we were out of the playoffs, that I was going to pick um, a day to end the streak. And my decision was going to be like the last day of the season, just to say I could have played 162 if I wanted to, but let's turn it back to the to, to way it used to be. And it turned out to be, I changed my mind. It was the last day at, uh, at home for that particular season. And when I went into the manager's office 10 minutes before the game to start, I said, okay, that, that, today's the day. Um, I don't want the lineup changed. I don't want to make an announcement. I just want to let it unfold. You know, and then I'll deal with it after the game's over. And so then they had to tell Ryan Miner that he was in the game. And so Ryan Miner thought it was sort of a, a, a prank of sorts, maybe a rookie prank. And he would, he was hesitant to take the field. And I had to go up there and convince him that it wasn't saying, dude, go out there and play. It's, uh, it's okay. But yeah. And then he ran out in the field and uh, then, then it was kind of revealed that I wasn't going to be playing that game. And then the Yankees reacted to it. The uh, whole stadium reacted to it. And it turned out to be a really wonderful celebration. It, it was so fantastic. I, I had the uh, privilege of doing a couple world series with Jim Cott and lots of uh, the College World Series, which is maybe the best event <laughs> in, in all of sports. And uh, he was on the call for that, which he always talks about, that it was kind of like, well, of course, you've seen it a million times. What are we seeing? Like, what is happening? And your intention was you thought you could do that quietly? Well, I knew that I was going to have a reaction. And the last thing I wanted to do was negatively impact the team. I was thinking, okay, 
let's deal with it after the game as opposed to before the game. And uh, so everything was normal. I was in the uh, lineup uh, like, like normal, and I was coming there. It was the last game. It was against the Yankees. And uh, so I walked in and told Ray Miller. And then uh, so they didn't make an announcement on it. They had a lineup change. And, you know, I, I didn't know this, um, but I thought about it. When the umpires meet at the at home plate, that then it's revealed when you exchange the lineup cards at that point. So I think Joe got a little – Joe Torrey got a, a little bit of a, um, a heads up from the lineup cards and he went back because I looked over and all of a sudden the Yankees were all standing on the top step of the dugout, you know, applauding me, you know? Um, and I was thinking, God, that was a quick reaction. But now that I think about it, it was probably Joe came out and said, you know, Cal's not in the lineup. And I think it turned out really well. And I didn't really plan this out, but I mean, the Yankees seemed to react to me on the top step of the dugout. And then all of a sudden the stadium seemed to in, in uh, phases all of a sudden realized it and it kind of went all the way around the stadium, almost like a wave. Did you ever have imaginary conversations with Lou Gehrig? You know, because there's not anyone that you can really talk about that can experience what you've experienced. And I found um, it's really interesting that you say that is, yes, of course, I would have loved to know why you did it. You know, what was your what was your approach? And I assumed that his approach was the same as mine, that he came out there to play for the team. The team counts on your, your, you each and every day to play. And then you're able to play. So I would have loved to hear that back and, and have it confirmed that, you know, I wasn't, uh, I, I always thought that was the right way that everybody played. And I assumed that Lou Gehrig had that same sort of attitude um, about playing. But I did have a chance to talk to Sashio Kinogasa. Now, Sashio Kinogasa was the Japanese player that had the world record, 22-15 in a row. And I had a chance to go over and play with him. And he started to sit down with somebody that's played 2,000 games in a row. And you get a chance to uh, ask him what, what his uh, approach was and all that. And I, and I was uh, happy to find out that it was the same view that I had. And I think a lot of people have that feeling. And a lot of people can play, you know, uh, 162 games in a row. And uh, some people, a couple of te- my teammates had their best years. I think B.J. Suroff and Brady Anderson both played 162, I think once. And I think that once you've done it once, then you've, you prove to yourself that you can. So it's more of a mental hurdle that you have to get over. And then each year it's just preparing to, to go out and, and do the same thing. Now you got to be a little lucky or you got to be a little resilient. Um, you got to be a little stubborn, you know, because mentally uh, the game is hard and sometimes uh, you might need a break from the game to kind of get yourself out of a slump. I always thought the answer for slumps and the answer for anything was to be in the game, not sit on the outside of the game. So mentally, I was a little stubborn. Physically, I, I was uh, resilient. You know, I, I got hit with a pitch. I didn't have the same swelling that somebody else did. I didn't, um, I could play and tolerate a little pain. Um, and so it just seemed to happen to me. It wasn't, wasn't an obsession, but uh, I was glad to find out that somebody else that played 2,000 games in a row had the same approach that I did. But I think I heard you once say, I, I'm sure I got this wrong, that sometimes you thought injury could be helpful. That, oh, yeah. Yeah. In what way? That sounds so crazy. So, so um, it, it does. Um, I remember a couple of injuries early in my career, uh, um, probably second or third year. I remember hyperextending my elbow, sliding into second base. I avoided a tag, grabbed back in the bag. My elbow kind of bent, went the wrong direction and it, uh, it hurt. And I went to swing the bat in the on-deck circle the next time I came up, and uh, physically it was bothering me. 
And uh, so then I said, well, I'll give it a try. And I swung at a bad pitch in the first pitch and it really hurt to the point where the trainer came running out and he was concerned that, you know, Hey, something's really wrong. And I said, no, I think I'm all right. So I stayed in, I focused my attention on a good pitch, not to swing at a bad pitch, waited a little long, but hit a line drive at the second baseman. And while I was running to first base, I realized when I swing and miss, it hurt. When I hit the ball on the barrel, <laughs> it didn't hurt at all. And so I think it made So the stay. way you became the MVP of the league was because you were injured? <laughs> yeah. Well, everybody has injuries. I mean, if you're at 162, if you're playing 150, 145, or 100, it doesn't matter. You're not going to be 100% when you play in baseball, except maybe the first, first day of the season or the first day of spring training. So everybody has to deal with these little nicks and uh, those kind of things. But I think sometimes when you are hurt, uh, uh, the, the key to success in that situation was you got to get a good pitch to hit. You got to put a short swing on it. You know, don't try to do too much. Just let it happen. And because you're injured, you don't go overboard. You just stay with yourself. And I got hotter than I, could, I was. You know, my power numbers went up. My uh, batting average went up. And I kept thinking, man, there must be something to this injury thing. So. Every time I got injured in some way, if I if I got hit with a pitch in my wrist and it kind of hurt me a little bit, I thought there was a silver lining in there somewhere to discover. If only you could break your leg, you would have hit 45 home runs. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like to think that some of these injuries and some of the injuries I played through were more severe. I played through a herniated disc in my back after the record was broken because we were on a good team in 1997. And uh, quite frankly, if there was ever a moment that I felt selfish, it was that moment. It was like, wait a minute. I went through these rebuilding processes and now we're back and we're good. I'm not missing out on this. So I, I willed myself to play through a herniated disc and played well, you know, through that uh, period of time and then perform well in the playoffs. So I, I was happy that I was able to do that. But I used, I like to think that I, I would know the difference between a minor injury that's something you can play through and some, more of a major one where you couldn't. Were, were you ever uh, in jeopardy because of a stupid accident? Like, didn't your own teammate stick his hand in a fan and that other guy sat on a pineapple? I mean, <laughs> um, I never thought I would live my life. It was kind of uh, funny when the national media started covering the streak a little bit more. Um, People magazine and different things that don't ordinarily cover uh, baseball. I was asked all kinds of questions about um um, uh, am I careful at home? Do I, do, do I use knives to uh, cut your food up? Or do I mean, they were asking me questions like normal household accidents that would occur. Um, or do I take a bath instead of getting in the shower? They, <laughs> I don't know. Um, and I thought that was sort of ridiculous. Um, I didn't live my life carefully. And in the off season, I played basketball, which a lot of people would think, you know, to stay in shape and to, to make gains in the off season. Um, I was much more willing to, to play a sport that was fun. So you would do it more often and do it uh, harder and longer. And that always benefited me really well. But a lot of basketball, a lot of baseball players were, have been hurt by playing basketball in the off season and it affected their, um, their career. But I learned how to tape my ankles. Um, I took some precautions while I played, but I thought if something were to happen, it was meant to be. You must've grown up following the bullets, right? Um, yeah. I always, I loved all the Kentucky guards. I loved Kyle Macy. I loved Louis Dampier a little before your time, and I loved Kevin Grevy. So right. how now you probably have played pickup with or something with him along the way. Would you say you could hold your own against a <laughs> Kevin Grevy? <laughs> um, 
I was I uh, I was a good basketball player, and then I started to get my size. I could uh, jump a little bit. Um, I was strong enough to play in the post. I was strong enough to guard people that were you know bigger than I was. Um, I used to have the best competitive basketball games um, at my house. I built a gym in my house and had people over. People that played in college, people that played in Europe, people that played in the NBA, whoever I could get you know to come over. And in some ways, you're, you were kind of measuring yourself because you don't know how good you could have been. You know, uh, if, if could I have played in college? Sure. But I, uh, at what level? I'm not sure. But uh, I could compete, you know, with all the guys that uh, that I saw that played at higher levels. And uh, it was important to for me to challenge myself that way, because I thought and especially as I got older, it seemed like there were younger and younger people that came over to play basketball because it was almost like saying, OK. I'm not going to quit before you quit. And I'm, you know, twice your age or I'm, you know, especially towards the end. And uh, it must have been a dream to live with. (laughs) It was a good good motivating force to actually get the work in uh, and play. But I, but I enjoyed it. In some ways I thought I enjoyed playing basketball um, more than I enjoyed playing baseball. Uh, You played for how many? Seven, eight, nine managers. How many did you play for? (laughs) Nine. Did you nine? That's part of my speech when I go on the road. When I say uh, people say, "Cal, you you had it you had it uh, really stable. You di- you didn't uh, you played <laughs> 21 years in your hometown. You didn't really go through any change." And I go, "What do you mean I didn't go through change? Change came to me, you know." I, and I say, "Do you know how many managers I played for in my 21 years?" And then everybody kind of throws out a guess, four or five, you know. And I go, "No, nine. And I name the nine managers, and uh, and so every roughly every two years or two and a half years, change is coming to you. And um, how do you deal with that change, I think was pretty critical, is I learned really early on to go into the manager's office, um, you know, the first day of spring training, say, and say, congratulations, right guy for the job. And then I would make it a point to ask a question about me. I would say, how do you see my spring training unfold? You know, and so that was a leading question, you know, but ordinarily, what would happen? They said, well, Cal, you've been playing a couple few years now. Um, how do you see your spring training unfolding? So it gave me an opportunity to tell them, you know, and and I would say, well, I used to think the more games I played in spring training, the readier I was. I said, I don't feel that way anymore. I have special needs. I need extra work in the back. I need extra work in the cage. I need to organize my time. And then all of them would say, well, why don't you go home and look at the schedule? I would look at the schedule, fill out the schedule, bring it back to them in a form of a one piece of paper, put it on their desk the next day. And I would say, uh, you know, here's here's what how I see my uh, schedule. And then they would manage me from this piece of paper. Yeah, maybe you played for 10 managers <laughs> yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it, it was really good because most players don't do that. You know, pe- people would think that that would be, would be combative. And to me, it was about gaining some control over your life where you could get the best out of uh, what you needed. Most players came to the ballpark at 7 o'clock in the morning or 7.30 in the morning, and they would look at a board. And if your name was circled, you were on the trip that day. And if your name wasn't, you stay back. Now, that drives everyone crazy. That would drive me crazy. I couldn't stand that because I needed to plan for these things. So if you need to blow something out in the weight room or you need to work a little harder on your your defense uh, and you need to take extra ground balls, I need to know when that's going to happen so that I can prepare for it better and I'm I'm not going to blow it out before a game. And so, but most players um, live with that, uh, live with the mystery of what's going to happen and it's all relying on the manager. So to me, it's all about putting some controls over things that you don't think you can control to make your life a little better. 
What's your favorite Earl Weaver story? <laughs> so Earl Weaver, um, the, the Earl Weaver, Jim Palmer back and forth was uh, pretty, pretty funny and pretty comical. And they had a big history, you know, to their uh, relationship that went back long before I got there. Um, I got there to the big leagues and my locker was right next to Jim Palmer's. And so, uh, so um, at that time, he was the underwear guy. So there was all kinds of extra underwear that came into my locker as a result of being uh, um, next to Jim. But I heard all these stories, but for the first half of my rookie year or so, not, nothing of these stories happened. I didn't see anything that happened between Earl and, and Jim. And then one day, Jim came in. He had a crink in his neck. He did something to his neck. And I remember he came in kind of concerned, went into the training room and said, uh, you know, uh, I don't think I can pitch tonight. I can't pitch tonight. Go tell, go tell the manager, Earl. Go tell Earl that I can't pitch tonight. And so I started to think, whoa, okay, this could be one of those moments that I've heard about, but I haven't seen. So I turned my chair around and I started watching this unfold. And the trainer went into the manager's office and Earl didn't get mad or didn't say anything else. He goes, he goes, that's okay. You know, uh, tell him I want to see him. And so he comes out and tells Jim that he wants to see him. He goes, why do I have to go see him? He goes. He's the manager. So he, he walks in. He goes, I understand you hurt your neck or something happened to your neck and you can't pitch tonight. And uh, Jim said, uh, um, yeah. Uh, and he said, well, that's OK. Get some treatment. You know, if you want to go home, it's OK. Go home. Just, uh, you know, make sure we're ready for the next time. And he said, probably it, it, this is probably good for the team that this has happened because uh, I was trying to figure out a way to revamp my rotation. So Mike Flanagan could pitch in in. Uh, Oakland and Scotty McGregor could pitch in Anaheim on this next series. And this gives me the opportunity to do that. And I'm going to start Sammy Stewart tonight, you know, in your place and gives me a chance to rework that rotation. He says, so probably this is probably better for the team that you're not pitching tonight <laughs> because, <laughs> because Sammy Stewart really has good numbers against his team. and <laughs> you, you don't. <laughs> and so we probably have a better chance of winning tonight, you know, with, uh, with, um, with Sammy Stewart. than you. And he said, you're a Hall of Fame pitcher. Don't get me wrong. You know, but every once in a while, there's a team that has your number. <laughs> and Jim stood up and says, says, no, um, we have a better chance of me winning. No, you don't. Yes, you do. No, you don't. Yes, you do. And then Jim looks at him and calls him a name and says, listen, you little, I'm pitching tonight. And there ain't a damn thing you can do about it. And he storms out. <laughs> and then I'd <laughs> like to tell you that the, it ended where he threw a shutout or he did something. I can't tell you the result. But I remember looking at the uh, in the office and Earl Weaver looked back at it, out at me and my mouth must have been open like, like, what just happened? And then he looks at me, puts his feet up on the table and he winks <laughs> like that. And I, I asked him like 20 years later at the Hall of Fame, because sometimes we add to the story to make it more interesting. And sometimes so I said, I, let me tell you a story about what I saw in my first year, you know, and tell me if that happened or not. And I told him pretty much exactly how I told you. And he goes, he goes, yeah, I had to do a couple of those things every once in a while to, to, to push Jim a little bit. One of the things that I did see later in that summer, Jim was awesome my first year. He had went gone 14 or 15 games without being defeated. He led us back into that race with the Milwaukee Brewers, and we tied the game up in the last day of the season. And he ended up losing game number 162 against Don Sutton. But he had an awesome year. But there were times in that year where Jim thought, you know, uh, I'm losing it a little bit. I'm not as good as I used to be. And, you know, he would yell in the dugout, you know, Earl, you better get somebody else up in the bullpen. And Earl didn't want to take him out, you know, and, and Earl would say, okay. And so he'd go to the bullpen thing and uh, get somebody else, a least likely candidate, 
that was coming in the game. <laughs> and Jim would look out, Jim would look out over the thing and he goes, Why do you have him him warming up? And he goes, because he's coming into the game. And he goes, The hell he is. <laughs> <laughs> I feel better. And he would stay in the game, right? Because this is my game. I gotta win. You know, I'm, I'm not gonna put put it in the hands of somebody that's uh, struggling out in the bullpen. So those were little things that he used to motivate. Yeah. Jim was so great. And Jim had uh had that sort of personality that, and uh, that they had that relationship that they went back and forth. So I did witness a couple of those. Earl to me was more like putting his arm around me. I mean, you could swing at a bad pitch. I mean, I was three for five opening day. Didn't you hit a home run or something? I hit a first? home run on my first opening I mean, day. That's ridiculous. And I was three for five, I had a double, and I thought everything was going to be really great. And I went four for my next 63. So if you add, it, add in my good day, I'm seven for seven for 68, which uh, was about a 125 or 120 batting average, which showed on the big board every time I came up. But Earl kept calling me in the office and said, look, I'm not going to take the eye. You're playing really well. You prove you can play in AAA. You, you, you dominated in uh, winter ball. This is the next step. So he really encouraged me and uh, didn't yell at me. But if I, if I didn't have a good at bat and I came back and sat in the, in the, uh, the sometimes the only seat on the bench was near where Earl was. Um, whatever Earl was going on in his mind, it came out of his mouth a lot of times. And <laughs> we were sensitive to that. You know, you could, you know, like you'd say, swing it, you know, take the good ones, swing at the bad ones. <laughs> you know? Boils it down. Yeah. And so there'd be little things that other players could get mad at him. You know, said, I'm, you know, I'm trying or I'm not doing it on purpose. <laughs> Did you feel the a responsibility to represent your dad in the way you handled yourself? He a good man, you know, a um what people think baseball coaches should be. It's the Ripken name. Yeah, for sure. So I, I felt the responsibility to do things right in the way that, you know, it was, it used to be called the Oriole way. And then uh, as the Oriole way kind of go, went and there were fewer people that were around during the Oriole way, it became the Ripken way. And it was all about uh, doing things a certain way and doing it right. So I thought I represented that as best I could, you know, the, um, playing with your dad on, on, on a uh, team and all the stories that he would talk about uh, playing, you know, when he got hit, hit in the hand and his bone was sticking out and they take two fingers together. And he told, told them to go back in. I got to finish this game. Um, I remember uh, having a, I don't know, a toe injury or something like that. I'm thinking I can't go uh, tell my dad I got a toe injury and then figure out I'm not, I'm not playing. Um, but the, the behavior, yeah, he, he shaped, uh, there's a right way to do it there. You know, he used to always say, you can't do that. that that's wrong. You know, and there was, so was, there was a definite difference between right and wrong, especially on the baseball field. I'll, I'll give you a, a, a one example that I think is pretty interesting. He would say, uh, he would say the hidden ball trick, you know, that's an amateur play. There's no place for that in professional baseball. You know, um, you know, we're competing. That's not how you compete. So, you know, I was like thinking, well, the hidden ball trick is kind of fun. You know, if you hide the ball from them and you kind of tag them out. Um, but when I when I first saw the second baseman trying to set up a hidden ball ball trick, you know, the ball came in from the outfield. The guy had a double. The second baseman had the ball. Guy on second wasn't paying attention. The second baseman faked the throw back to the pitcher and kept the ball in his glove. Now he's standing way over there, and the idea would be I should hang around second base until the guy would just walk off. You know, think the pitcher has the ball. And then the ball would come from the second base when I'd catch and tag him out. And I started to think, you know, I can't do this. My dad said it was, it was an amateur play. This is not a professional play. (laughs) 
And so I thought for a second and I walked up to the guy on second base and I said, don't get off the base. The second baseman has the ball. <laughs> and he, and he looked, that's not a bull Durham. He, Wait a he looks at me for a minute. And I go, don't get off. He said, the second baseman has the ball. <laughs> now he doesn't know to believe me, but I was going to stay on base um, because I've made him aware of it. And sure enough, it's revealed that the second baseman had the ball because you can't start the inning unless the ball comes back in. And uh, the guy looked over at me and he said, thank you to me. And, you know, what dad was really talking about was there was a way to compete. And there was a way not to compete. And, uh, and there, there's no sense embarrassing the other people on the other team. And I will tell you that little lesson that I learned early in my career was there's a, there's a sportsmanship way that you can conduct yourself on the field that still allows you to compete at the highest level. Now, I don't, I don't know whether I might have pulled the hidden ball trick on the seventh game of the World Series. If, if the World Series was on the line and we were in trouble and the bases loaded, I might have changed my tune to get an out so we can win the World Series. But as you competed through there, the point was there's a way to play the game and there's a way not to play the game. Um, I'll give you a real – I'm just thinking of other examples. Ricky Henderson used to used – to, I mean, greatest base dealer in the history of baseball. He'd steal and all he cared, you know, he would never look in to see what happens at home plate, whether the ball was hit, whether it was up in the air, whether it was not. And he would slide really hard into the bag, you know, and then uh, I remember covering one, one time he slid in the bag. It was a foul ball straight back. And I said, Ricky, it's a foul ball. You got to go back to first. And uh, and he looked at the umpire and the umpire said, yeah, Ricky, it's a foul ball. You got to go back to first. <laughs> he looks up at me and goes, damn, that hurts Ricky's body. And he runs back, runs back to first base. <laughs> Then he steals again in the same hitter and I'm covering second base again. And this time the hitter fouls the ball straight back again. And Ricky is coming in, but I had the presence of mind to say, Ricky, foul ball, foul ball, stand up, stand up. Now he had to trust me that I wasn't messing with him, but he uh, kind of stood up, stood in the bag. And I got some foul ball, Ricky, you have to go back to first base. And he looks at the umpire and the umpire shakes his head. Yes. And then he looks at me and he goes, he goes, Ricky, thank you. You saved Ricky's body. And he ran back to first base. Now, that's a gesture that, I mean, I mean, if you're playing in a certain way, you're competing in a certain way, why wouldn't I want Ricky to slide every single time? Maybe you don't want to steal anymore. Um, but, uh, but Ricky was a, was a competitor. I thought that was wrong. I thought uh, a professional courtesy was on a foul ball and I'm covering. I shouldn't mess with him. I should say, hey, you know, stand up. And so those little things, you know, serve me. But that was respect for, for trusting you. You know, that yeah. was... He had respect. I always thought that Ricky was like Deion Sanders before Deion Sanders. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, Ricky was the most explosive. I mean, he could be at full speed, like in the second stride. You know, it was amazing. And then uh, trying to hold him on at second base, you know, he had this sort of rhythm in his, uh, in his, and he had this confidence that he could do it and he would just take off. Would you tell me the challenge, if you would, of facing a Clemens? And then maybe Randy Johnson or a couple of the others that you said, boy, I'm in for it. Yeah, the, uh, you know, everybody asks you now when you're away, you know, who was the toughest pitcher you ever faced? And then there's some interesting stories about each one of those. I mean, I, I used to always say Goose Gossage. You know, he was, uh, he was throwing harder than anybody in the league. He looks like he was a little crazy. Um, would miss up and in, you know, if he got his mechanics wrong, he would miss up and in. Uh, he didn't have much chance to get out of the way. You know, and then so so you were thinking about that as, as you were at the plate. But the truth of the matter is all the number ones were really tough to face. But then you had to measure yourself against the number ones. You know, and you could come through in the clutch. You can have, I mean, I hit a few home runs off of Roger Clemens, but I mean, my batting average is probably 240 off them or something. But there were times when you could beat them. 
you know, and then you had to, you know, try to raise your game to kind of to get to that point. Uh, Rogers ball would really explode in, uh, up in the strike zone. You know, it was very difficult to get, get to him. And he, and Roger, the thing that most people didn't know about Roger, Roger had pinpoint control. You know, he, he, not only did he throw the hardest in the league at, at one point, but he had such great control and understanding what to do with the baseball. Um, similar to Nolan Ryan. I think Nolan Ryan was his hero. And Nolan Ryan, when I faced Nolan Ryan, I hit a couple of home runs off him as well. But uh, the, the explosion on his ball, especially even when he was older, you know, uh, you know, the ball came out of his hand. It had life on it late. It just kind of jumped at you. And uh, I remember facing Nolan in the 85 uh, All-Star game. He started that game uh, for the National League. It was in Minnesota. And I came back thinking, man, this guy throws harder than anybody in our, in our league. And, and I think he was 38 or 39 or something at the time. But anyway, facing those guys, is it, it's going to be hard. And you know it's going to be hard. And you're going to have to try to, to figure out. Pedro Martinez one year um, had, the, had the greatest year, almost like a Bob Gibson type year, where uh, he had really a minuscule ERA. He had the best fastball in the league, best curveball in the league, and the best changeup in the league. And even if you guessed right on which pitch, it was still hard to hit when, when you were on the right. When you, I got a fastball, I got a changeup that I wanted to hit. You know, I knew the count was coming in this place and you get it. It still was very difficult to actually square that ball up. So it's just a difficult challenge. Some, are, some can be intimidating like Goose Gossage. And you got to figure out how you deal with that intimidation factor um, because you can't hit when you're thinking about getting hit or, or when the ball comes inside. So. Uh, there, there was a lot of mental mental games that I used to do to give myself courage standing in the batter's box sometimes. And sometimes it would be just uh, if you think the pitcher's a little off, go talk to him, <laughs> find out who he is. Oh, and then right. like the Goose Gossage thing, um, one night with Goose Gossage, and uh, it was really bothering me in my rookie year, Tim Stoddard was up, my teammate, and he was good friends with Goose. And so he invited him out for dinner afterwards. I overheard the conversation in, in the training room. And uh, this place that he was going to go after a game was right next to my apartment. So I decided to stop in. They didn't know what I was going to do. And they invited me over. And so I ate and drank with uh, Goose and uh, Tim. And he found out that he was a really good guy. Now, that, that took that edge away. You know, when I stood in the batter's box, I no longer saw him as, uh, you know, this guy that uh, was, was wild and crazy. I thought he was a pretty good guy. So I didn't worry. And so then I started hitting Goose a little bit better after that. Who do you enjoy uh, the state of the game today? You know, there seem to be powerful, like you, big shortstops. Do you feel like you kind of started that? Well, um, I was, I think my success at the position at my size um, might have changed the mindset a little bit and maybe afforded other people an opportunity. I kind of look at it since I'm a basketball fan. You look at what Magic Johnson did to the point guard position. I mean, he's 6'9". <laughs> And the advantage of him looking over a guard that's guarding him is ability to see and pass the ball into the post or pass anyway. Well, do you know what's interesting? Um, I covered all those Laker Celtics uh, for CBS in the 80s. And Pat Riley's dream team was that everybody would be 6'9". Like he always said, if he could put a team together, everybody would be 6'9", which I don't think he was sorry that Kareem <laughs> was 7'3". But it's, uh, I do, I mean... You look at shortstops now, and it does look like you paved the way. That, that's a good analogy. I mean, and um, I feel good that my success allowed other people. But I think the likes of, um, you know, Derek Jeter or, you know, Alex coming behind or whatever else, they would have paved their own way. Um, 
but there were there was definitely a time when you thought you were too big to play shortstop. It was thought of as a position where people used to have the nickname Pee Wee and Scooter and all those guys. It was small guys or the best shortstop. We just honored Ozzie Smith at our gala a couple of nights ago. Ozzie Smith was, he might've been 145 or 150 pounds and he was acrobatic, acrobatic and quick as a cat either way. You know, he could cover all the ground. He could catch the ball in the run. He could throw the ball in the run. He could do all that kind of stuff. I couldn't do those, those things. So I had to ask myself, how do I make all the plays and do, do them in the way that I can do them? You know, maybe I can't round a ball or take it on the run, but maybe I can shorten it up and get my footwork right and catch it and throw, you know, in one, in one motion. Maybe I use my backhand. Maybe I use my stronger arm in the hole, whereas other shortstops might make a, another play another way. One of, my, one of my proudest accomplishments as a player had nothing to do with hitting home runs and RBIs and uh, MVPs. It was that I think there were two shortstops in the modern, more modern era of baseball that had 900 chances in the same season, and it was me and Ozzie Smith. And so I think and in, in, that, in that particular year, I had I broke the American League assist record for shortstops in a single season. And I still think I hold that. But you were much more athletic. I mean, people who watch the game a lot would always say that he's so much more athletic than you think. Right. Just because he's big doesn't have anything. And, 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 I, and again, I come back to say because of my success defensively and offensively, um, you know, I was more proud of the, uh, the defense that I could put together or that pitcher would say who do I want the ball hit to in the last play of the game you know uh, if I'm in, in trouble you know every single time I want to hit to you and so and I had a style that uh, could make a harder play look easier you know and uh, more fundamental I laughed with Ozzy Smith um, two nights ago I said uh, remember the time we went to uh, Japan you and I split time at, uh, at shortstop and Ryan Sandberg and Frank White were the other two second basements you know we had the two boring uh, fundamental guys match up, me and Ryan Sandberg, and we had two flashy guys that uh, Frank, <laughs> Frank and you as a double play combination. And he started laughing at that. At that. But it, it's just a different style of play. What, what did you think of, I guess, a couple of things of the agreement? Do you like 12 teams in the postseason? Do you like the universal DH? And then just, you know, what do you think of some of the, the other changes that are happening? Yeah, there's a couple of things. So all those things were decided upon. I like the DH. I didn't like the actual that there were two different ways to play. Um, um, I like a little more of a balanced schedule and, um, and uh, because if you're getting down to more playoffs and all that kind of stuff, you want to have the same sort of schedule, um, not similar schedule as opposed to the uh, uh, schedule that you play all your teams in your division more often. I don't like the clock. You know, I, I think uh, the pace of game – you know, is usually dictated by the pitcher. Pitcher throws strikes, you know, and it gets the hitter's got to swing the bat, you know, and the, the action happens a little bit uh, quicker. If you're going to use a clock, use a clock in the minor leagues to kind of say, okay, this is how we want the game played, big leagues, and um, this is the timing of the play. One thing I did hate, and, and I don't know how it relates to trips to the mound, but I hated the uh, the stalling aspects of uh, of of sending you know, someone to the mound and trying to talk longer, or send the infielder in, try to talk longer so you can get the person more um, uh, throws in the bullpen because you didn't have him ready. If you don't have him ready and the time is up, you should not be able to stall. And it's obvious, don't you think, when they're doing that? <laughs> oh, for sure. And and for those of us that watch the game a little bit more carefully, when we played the Yankees, I'll give you a specific example. 
Um, there were, was a time when you might face Roger for first two at bats. You know, if you're hitting fifth or sixth, you're, uh, your third at bat's going to come up in the sixth inning or something like that. If your third at bat meant anything, then Jeff Nelson would come in the bullpen, the matchup against me and the righty. And then you get Mariano Rivera at the end of the game. So really you had two against the starter, one against Jeff Nelson and one against, which made it really difficult to hit. And every once in a while that would creep up on Joe Torrey, you know, that, uh, that uh, all of a sudden the situation, we got a couple quick hits, uh, blue pit, somebody got another hit and all of a sudden I'm in the on deck circle and they don't have Jeff Nelson ready, you know? So then they you see them, get, I'm thinking to myself, um, good. He's not, they're not going to have him ready. You know, I, I won't have to face Nelson uh, in this is bad in this situation. But then all of a sudden, uh, the infielders go out there and start talking. Then Joe Girardi went out there and started talking or whatever else. Then Joe Girardi comes back behind on plate. And then all of a sudden, miraculously, has some a piece of dust in his eye. And then he has to call the trainer out. And you look at his eye to try to get something out of his eye. He's going like this. Meanwhile, Jeff Nelson is throwing down the bullpen and getting hot. And then all of a sudden, yeah, everything is fine. You need any throws, Joe, you know, between innings, uh, you know, to see if your eye's okay. Um, no, I'm okay. Sits down behind on plate. Joe Torrey comes out of the mound and takes him out. <laughs> and so to me, when I'm sitting there looking at him going, isn't this super obvious what's going on? That that leads to what my dad used to say. That that that's that shouldn't happen in professional baseball. But a lot of people that play say, you know, that, you know, look what I just did, what I accomplished. I got a, uh, Jeff Nelson in the game and we had the right matchup against uh Cal who was sitting in the uh in the on deck circle. So well, do you feel the the shift? I mean, are you somebody? I mean, I I say if you can play defensively well, why not shift? I don't know what that's about. Yeah. Did, they didn't make. Did they make any rules to, to no. make the shift legal? No, I, because I think that that's a dumb kind of concept. Everybody's got to play. Besides the catcher, got to play within the white lines, and you can play anywhere you want. Um, before the analytics came out, um, we, we all use our own memories and our ideas of the type of hitters, where they hit the ball, what's their tendencies. And I was uh, a shortstop that paid attention to those things. So I positioned myself within the at-bat, you know, many times where you anticipated where the ball was going to be hit based on the knowledge that was right in front of you. And so I utilize that all the time. You're such a good guy. You've been so generous with your time. Just, uh, I guess, one last area. Is this the year that the Orioles come out of the darkness? (laughs) <laughs> i don't think anyone's smart enough to when I, I i was in the uh um, studio in the broadcast booth i think for 10 years for tbs and uh one thing every time they wanted to make predictions on what's going to happen i'd always think in my mind that's why we we're playing the game you know the playoff teams any playoff team that gets there you know you might look at them on paper and say okay this team is better but in it's a matter of who plays better in that series who plays better in that game so making those kind of predictions always are hard. And if you look at it, but team, wait a minute, I, if you're losing a hundred plus games year after year sure. after year, then what would be that? Um, what would give an Oriole fan reason to believe this year? So um, hopefully in a rebuilding process, the uh, people you're drafting and you're building from within all of a sudden develop in the players that you think they're going to develop. Now they have some good prospects that are coming along and some, uh, uh, this Rushman kid as a catcher, you know, looks really good. And uh, it looks like he does things really easy. And uh, I thought they should have pushed him to the big leagues, you know, last year, but um, trying to control contracts and all that other kind of stuff that happens. Um, so if these players start to come together, the idea is they'll come together, they'll grow as individuals, and then they'll grow together as a team. Um, 
there's too many variables to say if, 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 and you're hoping that you pick the right people. So it is possible. I remember if I go back in my own rebuilding stage, we lost all those games in a row in 100 games in 1988. In 1989, we made virtually with the same team, but we made a few adjustments. Some young young players came in, I think Finley and, you know, we had Devereaux, I think the year before, um, Orsalak played really well. All of a sudden, these young players were performing, and all of a sudden, that became the why not year. Right. And even the pitchers that weren't expected to to put up wins, Bob Malacky, Dave Johnson, they put up some wins in that game. And all of a sudden, we were playing the Toronto Blue Jays at the last. You know, nobody could have predicted that we would have turned it around that fast. So, um, is it possible that the uh, players can step in and uh, and and uh, become the players that you hope they would play, and then everything can kind of come together? Yeah. Um, but I would I would be a little skeptical that uh, th- this this wouldn't be the year where you you go from losing 100 plus games to winning 100 games. <laughs> uh, but well, hopefully we'll see signs that uh, that this rebuilding process is taking going hold. the right way. Um, I cannot thank you enough. You are so much fun. I knew you'd be so much fun. You are, as you know, well, as I'm sure you hear very often, you are a national treasure, and I really want to thank you. Will you come on with me again? Oh, absolutely. Oh, Anytime. Great. Thank you, Cal. It was really fun. This, really this fun. is all we have is memories. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yours are pretty good. <laughs> Give me a chance to talk about them. And that was my conversation with Cal Ripken Jr. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today on Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you stream your podcast to enjoy new episodes every week. In Conversation with Leslie Visser is part of the Sirius XM Podcast Network and is available on the SXM app included with most subscriptions. The executive producer is the great Andrew Emmer, sound design by Robert Moore, and special thanks to Sirius XM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen. Talk to you next week. Sirius XM Podcasts.